Heavenly Father, privileged Lord, to be able to reflect on the miracle of the nativity, the birth of the Messiah, the promise of salvation, and the courage to wait. I ask, Lord, that the call that is deep in our heart, and we have the courage to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is not new to some of you who live in Denver, um, and those of you who've flown into Denver, uh, this is not new to you too, and, uh, and actually, I should mention, just before I dive really quickly into this, that if you do need a manuscript to follow with me, because I am going to speed up, um, then I have a few manuscripts here, and so Kevin will come around and spread, share those with you, so just put your hands up, and uh, Kevin will share those with you. Those of you who are new to Denver would, would understand that, of course, it's not difficult. It's not difficult, indeed, to come into an area like Denver, fly into an area, and feel turbulence, right? Turbulence is kind of expected, in fact, at the Mile High City, that if you fly in there, that you should hit a little bit of turbulence. So I was in this airplane flying in, and I hit absolute horrible turbulence. So you know the type where you hear people actually kind of vomiting. Um, and, it's, and it's really kind of awful turbulence when, when you kind of smell the vomit, and especially when you smell the, that they've eaten Chinese food with the, the McDonald's strawberry milkshake. And you're thinking to yourself, why in the first place did you mix those two uh, together? Because now when they come back with the acid, it, it's just, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really come together. It didn't go well going in, didn't come well coming back up either. And so you hear babies crying. And that's me, I think. It's me. It's all good. That's, uh, it's going really bad. And then, of course, the plane loses altitude a little bit, just 10 feet, not a lot. And you just feel like, I'm so glad I'm buckled, right? Because as it goes, whoa, you feel like, oh my goodness, that's really bad. Of course, in this particular plane ride, the lights went out. Uh, and that was it. It was just like, there was like screaming at this point. Because when the lights go out, you realize that the power may be going out, and there's lightning outside, and you're thinking to yourself, what is going on? And we were flying over Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan at this time was frozen. So you're thinking to yourself, it's dark, it's really miserable, it's horrible, the lights have gone out, there's lightning outside, the lake is frozen, uh, I don't think I'm going to make it, we're dropping altitude right now, and we're feeling the kind of pressure inside, and the stakes are raised even higher. And you ask, how could the stakes be raised even higher? Because the plane is full of Adventists and Catholics. And you're like, how do I know this? Because they're all on their way to Andrews University and Notre Dame University. Because we're flying from Chicago to South Bend, Indiana, right? And it's just the beginning of where school term is about to begin in January. I know this. The two flagship institutions of these two tribes are waiting for all their students and faculty to arrive. And I'm on this little plane just ready to arrive. And so all these people, these religious leaders and students are just arriving, ready for this. And you can hear they're pulling out their rosary beads and to pray as they're going through here. They're reciting scripture because they're ready for the end of their life, right? I did notice, though, that no one was reciting, as far as I could hear, Ellen White or St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, I, I, just, I just wanted to say they were reciting scripture uh, and saying prayers to God. Others were singing hymns, and then, and then the phones came out. Uh, and they were like, ah, oh, forget it. 
forget it, I don't care about interference at this point. The phones came out and they were going to call because, you know, we're all going to die. I might as well just call or leave a voicemail hoping that the voicemail will be recorded. And the question I have is, who would you call if you only had one call to make? And what would you say? Now, I am always thankful that I've never eaten anything before one of these little flights. I try to never eat on one of these little mini flights. And it is a mini flight because, you know, it's only 20 minutes from Chicago to South Bend. Um, and in my view, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like I, I, I kind of embrace this. I kind of say to myself, well, if it's going to be now, it's going to be now, right? And if I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. So I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm going to land, let me get on with my work. What should I do? And so this is what I'm thinking as I'm trying to deal with all this kind of stuff, staying focused and super, super calm. Of course, who are we kidding? I'm not calm. I'm far from calm. I'm stiff in the chair. I'm sweating. I mean, I'm saying all of this, but there's sweat coming out of my brow. And I'm just, my body and my heart and my, my, my brains are like telling myself, this is not working. I'm not feeling happy about this at all. I'm just feeling like I'm going to throw up myself. I feel like if I grab that bag, I will hurl. Something will come up, so I resist the bag as much as I can. I know it could crash at any point, and I know United Airlines, you've done this on purpose. For eight hours, for eight hours, you made me wait in the lounge, you made me sit down there, and I thought you were delaying it all this time, telling me the flight's been delayed. You're hoping that I would give up and go get a bus and take that three-hour bus ride there. But no, I had paid for this flight, and I was going to take that 20-minute flight home and I was going to sit out and wait for United to work out a way to get across that frozen lake. That's what I was going to do. That's what I was going to stick at. So I left it there, leaving there, waiting for it. But now, I wonder, is there something, um, is there a battery maybe? Let me just check. Uh, I, have, um, I have two bars. I feel very powerful. Uh, it's a Duracell, so it's not an ever-ready uh, little bunny. Uh, so I feel like it could be okay. Yeah, we're good. All right. So I feel I feel okay. I feel like it's going to be okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna hang in there, and I go for this, and I stay. I'm gonna if I can make it all the way through, it's worth it. But I I feel to myself, man, it, maybe I regretted this long, long wait. But when I land in South Bend and you walk through the plane, through all the sticky stuff, and you get off the plane, I feel absolute joy. That was worth waiting for. That was worth the eight hours, because you know what? I did a lot of work that day. I got so much stuff done. That 20 minutes of me just thinking, of coming closer to Jesus, it was worth it. And it was worth waiting for all that time. And I can handle that ride. And so every single time, I always flew from Chicago to South Bend, South Bend to Chicago, I did it every single time. I never did the whole drive to Chicago, what a waste of time. I took the risk every time because I made it every single time. And I'm testimony of that. I'm standing here right now. Here's the thing. How do you think, how do you think Mary and Joseph felt waiting to arrive at the temple? I mean, how do you think they felt? Long lines, counting down the 40 days, dedicating the child to God, hearing that blessing for the first time, waiting all the time for that, then hearing 
when they heard, you remember the scripture that was read? When they heard, the sword will pierce through your heart. How did they feel about that? How do you think Simeon and Anna, who'd waited decades of their life, felt waiting to see baby Jesus arrive at the temple? How do you think they felt about that? Why the temple? Why not the stable? Why not tell us about Anna? and where she's from. Why tell us all about those details? Why tell us how old they were? Why are we learning so much details in here? Why do we, do we have to fast and pray more now? What Duplo and Technic stuff do we have to learn inside this text inside here? Are there too many questions? Yeah, there's loads more, I know. But today, I only have two recalibrate questions for you. I mean, there's so many questions that we could look at and so many things that we could explore but I have two very heavy recalibrate questions for you. Because the story is embedded with so much truth and so many things that you could apply to, but these two questions I think are important for us as we come to the close of this entire series here, and for us as we come towards the end of this year, end of this Christmas season as well, and I think they're important to us at any point in our lives as well. So question number one, what does listening to the voice of God look like, which is something they had to do, something they had to wrestle with, something we do all the time, something we have to ask ourselves all the time, because we're constantly battling back and forth about this, which is what they had to do as well. I had this conversation not too long ago. Hey, you should try to explore the Bible. The person said, no, not really interested in studying. I like to feel my way through life. That's what they said. I like to feel my way through life. Well, the Bible, I said to them, the Bible is the best way to hear the voice of God. They said, no, there's lots of people who hear the voice of God without the Bible. That's just your thing, pastor. You like studying, so you should think, I like to feel my way through life. Well, I said to them, how do you know if what you're feeling is healthy or not? They looked at me and they said, well, love is healthy. Come on, pastor. Love is healthy? I was like, yes, it is. Love is very healthy. Then they said to me, so if I love, I don't need the Bible. I can just hear God, you know, because God through love. And, and after all, you said that God is love. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. So I said to them, so you like what the Bible teaches, right? Yes, they said, I believe in what the Bible teaches. God is love, and I'm going to love people, they said. I said, well, the Bible also teaches that the heart, the heart is not something you can rely on. It is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. There's an old dog called Jeremiah who said this in Jeremiah chapter 17. The Bible also teaches that if you are saved, you are saved through grace, by faith. And that's from an old guy called Paul who went through a huge change in his life in Ephesians chapter two. So feelings, my friend, fluctuate. Love, love, true love, true love is grounded in faith, and faith is found in the Bible. And that's why we encourage you here at this church to constantly discover more in the Bible. We have Bible study groups all the time. In fact, we encourage you to come to church, which is fantastic, to worship together, to open your heart up to God, to be able to respond with singing and listening to the Word. But then we encourage you to stay afterwards and to connect in our Bible study groups. We have Bible study groups for all ages. 
We call them camp sanitas for ages 0 to 17. And we have our connect groups for 18 plus of all ages that are all over the place, downstairs, upstairs, for all adults inside here. It's why we encourage you to even get into the daily walk every single day. You know, this morning, uh, several of you would have received this. I sent out an email this morning to invite people to join us December 31 for the new daily walk that we start December 31, part of that new movement series that we're going to begin. And I sent an email out to our new database of daily walk people. It's nearly, uh, I think it was like 1,100, no, 10,000 people. So we sent out an invitation to 10,000 people. I got so many emails back from people all over the world just saying they're really pleased, they're really excited to join us, they're going to join us on this journey. So many people saying, I want to do this with my family. I want to do this myself as well. I want to begin the new year, December 31, with the Bible, studying the Bible, reading the Bible with my children of all ages because we're going to break the text down for all ages so that you can actually study the Bible together with this. Think about this for one moment. How did Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph all turn up at the same time at the right time? How did they know this? Did they just have a feeling? Was it just like, oh, I just, I just kind of like I got a feeling. I just felt like it was this way. Well, let's turn in the Bible, shall we? Because the Bible gives us some ideas about this. Read us in Luke chapter 2. And if you have a pew Bible, you can pull it out. Luke chapter 2 page 950. So if you turn your Bibles to Pew Bibles, page 950. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 27. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 27. Page 950 in your Pew Bibles. And, and don't leave this text. Just uh, keep the text there. Put your thumb in it. If you've got your phones, open your phones up. Keep the text open. But Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 27. This is what the Bible says, a suggestion to us, that how they learnt why they should turn up at this time here. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was a righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to for him, and according to the custom of the law, this man, Simeon, he heard it through the Spirit by talking to him. But it was by the word of God. How do we know this? You go down to verse 29. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. What is this word? This word? This word is the first testament. What is this word that Simeon read? This word that he read, his Bible of his day? He read Isaiah. He read Psalms. He read Micah and Malachi. He read his Bible. And when he read his Bible and he read those books, he understood the Word of God. He saw the prophetic signs. He understood the Messiah was coming. He took the hope from the truth, from the Word of God. It's basic training. It's one-on-one. It's kindergarten. Look, babies love toys. Kids love toys, right? But they don't naturally want to share their toys, do they? You give them toys and you get another kid, you put another kid next to them, and then you say, now share. They're like, what? Why would I do that? <laughs> this child was made to play with that toy. Why would I want to give it to another child to play with? I'm enjoying it. We, as parents, are the ones who teach them. It's what Christmas is about as well. It's about the beauty of giving and the beauty of sharing, which is what I'm asking you to do with that mission gift, the Christmas gift that I'm asking you to give with these cards. It's about what you give with your time 
with the, what you give, with the offerings that you give, with your tithe and, your, and the renovation and the cost that you give for, your, for the local budget here as well. Everything that we do is because we give. We learn this. And we learn this because we learn this through Jesus Christ, through the Bible. Now, I know some of you are going to say, some of you are going to say, I, there are many civilizations, Pastor, many world religions out there that learn to love without Jesus. Well, let me give you the skinny, okay? Our story, our heritage, our start. We were not by accident. We were not created as an experiment. We were not a mistake. And we didn't come from a caveman or a cavewoman. We often think of the past as being very, very simple. And now we are complex. I know that we are definitely more handsome. Um, but, uh, but that's just myself as the prototype. But, but I think that when you look at the past, we often look at the past and we say to ourselves, oh, they were so simple back there. They had limited words. Oh my goodness, they didn't know how to express things back then. They didn't even understand how to grasp the Trinity. They had an IQ of five. That's how things are. We read the Bible, we don't understand the rhythm and the nuances. We don't even understand how to read the language. We don't even understand the sounds in Hebrew and the sounds in Aramaic and the way that the language came together. We don't understand the pictures inside it. When I was uh, in England, when you are 13 years old, you've already studied English, obviously, and you've studied uh, French at this point. And then when you're 13, you get to choose the third language. And so in my school, they gave you Spanish, and they also gave you German. And in my school, they gave you Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. And I opted for my Mandarin Chinese. I said, oh, I would love to learn that. So I had a Chinese, Chinese, I studied Chinese Mandarin for two years, and I loved it. It was fantastic. And one of the very first things that I learned is that within the characters, or when you're drawing all the characters, that each character is actually about a picture that they're creating that's part of the art of where they're describing things. And when they're describing Earth, and when they're describing men, and when describing human beings, there is so much deep theology inside it that's tied to Christianity, that's tied to a creator. There is embedded in the language something that is far greater than we imagine. And it's beyond anything that you can actually comprehend. It is inside our DNA that there's something greater than this. But the problem is, is that we have taught things as if they're facts of the past that are actually not true. The world was flat. Remember that? The world was flat. At least that's what we used to teach, right? We used to teach this that the church used to teach this. Anybody ever heard this? That the church used to teach us, oh, stupid church, stupid, stupid, stupid church. You used to teach that the world was flat, but the scientists, oh, they were so smart. They knew things, and they had to struggle against the, the infidel, stupid church. But the scientists were so bright, they struggled against you. And we actually believed this for so, so long, because we never understood that there is beauty in science, and there's beauty in theology, and they actually go hand in hand when you respect both of them, and they work in hand in hand instead of both of them being bickering at each other. Well, you should pick up a copy of this book, Medieval Views of the Cosmos by Evelyn Edson. Medieval Views of the Cosmos by Evelyn Edson. And if you go back there, you will realize that the church has always seen that the world was a sphere. In fact, there's a friar by the name of Roger Bacon uh, in the 1200s who referred to the curvature of the Earth. So, what happened? In the 1820s, not that long ago, I know some of you were alive at that point, 
In the 1820s, an American, uh, I know, I know, an American writer called Washington Irving wrote a biography of Christopher Columbus. And when he was writing this biography, he created an entire trial that never took place. He said that Christopher Columbus had to go to the church and battle with the church and say to the church, the world is a sphere, and the church said, no, it's flat, and he created the trial, he created the argument, and it became that the artist read this biography, created art, and the art spread like wildfire, and everybody believed that it was true. It's true. Don't be surprised. This happens all the time. We read something, we see something, we're not sure if it's true or not, and suddenly we think it's true. There's a, I know the founders of this website called barelyadventist.com. Um, and uh, so the guys who created it uh, are good friends of mine, and, and they create these memes. Um, and uh, so here's one of the memes. I, put, I took a safe one. Uh, security experts warn Adventists to stop using 1844 for their PIN numbers. <laughs> the problem is here, right, and if you're not Adventist, then you're, you're sitting in, this pew, in the pews with us, and I know a few of you don't, you're like, what's 1844? Well, just, just know that it's a significant date, and, and some of the people in this congregation are thinking, oh, no. I've got to change my pin, <laughs> right? Because there's, there's kind of like a little bit of truth inside there, and a little bit like, uh, is it true, is it not, I don't know. And now you're thinking, maybe the Wi-Fi password for the church is 1844. Well, uh, the lockbox uh, for the church used to be 1844. Um, and uh, we thought it was pretty secure for quite a while. Uh, then people found out. All right, so anyway. Uh, <laughs> But the thing is this, right? Things like this on media, uh, what's really funny is they post stuff on, on, on Facebook and so on, and people think it's true. And they are, their, their website actually says we're barely, I mean, they, they know they're making a joke, and people read the stuff and they, they start reacting. <gasps> I can't believe, da -da 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 -da. did he really do this? Did Ted Wilson do that? I'm like, it's a joke. It's supposed to be funny. Uh, chill, and they're like, oh, really? And I mean, and they're far-fetched. But, but we take these jokes and we take this, this art and we actually make them become reality. The most famous one in media that they talk about, that the media people teach all the time, is, is with Orson Welles in October 30, my birthday, 1938, uh, where he announced, remember, on the radio, he announced that the Martians had invaded the world. And a million people believed that the Martians had invaded the world. And I mean, if you listen to the broadcast, which I, I've, I've read the transcript, you can tell that he had prepped everybody. It's a radio broadcast about to happen. This is a drama. And then Orson Welles gets into it. But they, somebody must have been like chewing a potato chip at the time and just went silent for a second. The Martians are here. We want to believe this kind of stuff. So it becomes very difficult. Don't even get me started on politics today and all the rumors that we learn and we spread around each other. Now imagine you're trying to hear the voice of God and it's based on how you feel. Ah, I'm just going to feel it tomorrow. I'm just going to understand it today. I'm going to understand the power of the Holy Spirit just by myself. Without the Word of God, without the Bible to teach you, sure, it's not going to work, but I know there are people out there who don't have the Bible. Don't worry. God will find a donkey to talk to you. And by the donkey, I meant Balaam's story. I wasn't referring to somebody being a donkey. I'm just, I'm using a metaphor. 
in the Bible, literal, you know, whatever. But if you have the Bible, which we do, and you have the freedom in this country, which we do, then shouldn't you study it? Shouldn't you spend some time in it? Which brings us to the question, the ultimate question of this entire five-week series that we've been looking for. The whole series comes together. It's the question about what Christmas is all about, which is question number two in the worship guide here. In our quest to discover what child is this, do the narrative texts offer the significance and meaning we need today? Do they offer the significance and meaning we need today? And this is the question that we've been wrestling through the last five weeks. So if you have a chance to read the Daily Walk this week, you'll know that Luke, when he's writing this gospel, he intentionally skips over the ritual steps that take place here. He's much more interested in the fact that they've all arrived by the power of the Spirit through understanding the Word at the temple. And while they're there, they receive this blessing and they receive these messianic promises of the future. And we all know they've been waiting for something amazing. We all know what it's like to be anxious, right? We all know what it's like to be waiting for Christmas, right? I said to my son Jonah last night, uh, that, uh, yesterday actually, yesterday afternoon, I said, we're changing our Christmas tradition. Uh, we're no longer going to be open Christmas presents on Christmas morning. It's going to be Christmas afternoon. And you should have seen the look on his face, like, what? Right? I said, no, you, you go ask mom. She's, she's, you go ask her. And, and, and I knew he was going to ask her, so I had to prep her. Uh, you know, before he goes to ask her, because I hadn't, you know, concluded with her and got her ready for the story. But, uh, and I didn't think she had heard me, and so he was very sneaky. He, he, he immediately ran over to her and just said, hey, mom, what time are we opening the presents on Christmas Day? And she said, morning. I was like, no, 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 no. Let me clarify that. And you remember that conversation we had a few weeks ago, Becky? And I tried to bring it back, and, uh, and so then he came this morning before church began. Hey, Dad, what time are we opening? Just to double check. So, because it's Sabbath, you know, I told him the truth. Boxing day. No, no, I told him. I told him maybe Christmas morning, absolutely. You know, but we, we, we all expect something. We're all looking for something. We're all excited about the stuff, and we all know what it's like to wait for something. I remember when it was general conference session in 2010, uh, the excitement of waiting for the iPhone 4, I skipped an entire day. And, uh, and I went and lined up eight hours in Atlanta for the iPhone 4. And it was just so worthwhile. We, we do whatever it is. We remember our first car. We remember our first paycheck. Oh, so small. I mean, you, you remember all those things. You remember what it's like. So imagine Simeon and Anna waiting their entire lives. Surely, though, you would have traveled to the manger, wouldn't you? I mean, if you've been waiting all your entire lives, wouldn't you have traveled to the manger? Would you have waited 40 days? Why did the Spirit make them wait 40 days? Perhaps because of the significance of the location. Because the temple, after all, was the beacon and the center of everything of Israel. And this is where it starts to happen, okay? And this is where the amazing transition starts to happen. With baby Jesus, it's going to begin at the temple. Because there was a day when God's glory, his Shekinah, lived and existed inside that temple. When the glory was so full inside there, the priests could not even enter inside there. The temple was built so beautiful, the marble stone was so bright, that the sun, when it hit it at a particular point, would be like a light across the entire Jerusalem. And you remember when, when uh, Greg 
Red Hodgson actually blew the shofar horn in inside church, that sound that would echo through all of Jerusalem, or the, the, the spade that would hit hat down on, on the sacrifice, and that would echo through all of Jerusalem. The temple was the center of everything. It was the center of their entire worship experience. The temple is where heaven and earth intersect for them. The temple is where sins are forgiven. The temple is where people are purified. The temple is where your names are given. And the temple is where God's will is heard. And all of this was taken over by the Romans and by the emperors and by the people before. The temple had become now the central banking system of Israel. In fact, it was a place where they recorded all of the belongings and all the deeds and all the debts of all the people of Israel. So rebels would sometimes go inside the temple and take over the temple, and what they would do is they destroy everything inside the temple because they want to destroy all the records so they could kind of level things out inside there. Imagine, though, AD 70, when the temple was leveled and the ground was plowed, how their souls would have been crushed because everything is inside there. Now look how the Gospels take the temple, and they record how Jesus' connection is with the temple because Jesus is a baby boy, and he's found there in the temple. And then when he's 12, he's connected inside the temple. And then he says later on that he is greater than the temple. And then he tells them, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. All the time, he's blowing their minds about the temple, which is the center of their civilization. Jesus is saying to them, I am going to do something about this temple. I'm taking it to another place. That's why Mary and Joseph, when they come to this temple, they know this is the center of everything. They are being blessed inside the temple. It's in that place that God promised that he would dwell with them. And he came, and the promise that he would save them. Now, we love that. And we love the promise of being saved. And the promise is sure and guaranteed for us. But there are verses inside here that we often miss. Verses that we kind of skip over. And these are hard words. So turn back with me to Luke chapter 2, page 950. Same passage we were inside there. Luke chapter 2, verses 34 to 35. 34 to 35, page 950. We read these verses, and Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so the thoughts were from many hearts may be revealed. And we're all about Mary. We're all about, oh my goodness, how horrible for her. And we understand the anguish that she will have to go through, and we feel the personal loss of a mother having to see that. And we understand what it would be like for her to be on there, standing at the foot of the cross. And we understand all of this kind of stuff, but we don't really read deeply the first, first part of the verse here. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And where does that come from? It comes from Isaiah, 700 years before. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And what is Isaiah talking about? He's connecting all of these dots, all these things together. Well, thankfully, Peter, the Apostle Peter, connects all this stuff together for us. He does the whole work of the technique for us. He does this. He pulls Luke chapter 2, Isaiah 8, Psalm 118, and Mark 12 all together. He pulls all these texts together. And he does this really well for us. And I'm going to read this text to you because I want you to, this is our final text that I want you to read, page 117, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a very short passage inside here. It's a famous passage that sometimes we sing about this. 
And I don't know whether we actually understand the depth of what this means for us. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And this is a heavy word. A heavy, heavy word. It's a very small letter, so I'm going to give you the page number again. Page 1117. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation, and if indeed you have tested, tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you there yourselves are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Peter is blending together multiple passages of the First Testament in these 10 verses. When he says these words, when he writes his letters, this is just like, they just connect dots, like a, lights are just lighting up one after another, one after another inside here. Because this is what he says, this. When they were building the temple, the center of their entire lives, the builders were building this temple, and they found this stone, and they said, this stone is such an awkward shape, it's so big, we don't understand what to do, we're just going to move it to the side and keep on building the temple. When they finished building the temple, they said, we can't finish it, there's a space here where something's missing, and suddenly they said, you know that stone that we discarded and we pushed aside? That stone is the perfect stone. And they went and grabbed that stone, and they put that cornerstone into that spot, and it pulled the entire temple together, and it became the cornerstone. Right? So Psalms and Isaiah talks about the stone that they rejected, they accepted, and it held the temple together. It is the perfect cornerstone. The one they rejected, that's what they placed inside there. Simeon saw Jesus in the temple. He says, he's the gospel, he's going to preach this gospel, and it will become a stumbling block. When they hear the gospel, when you hear the good news in your life, you will either reject it or you will accept it. You will want to study the Word of God or you want to reject it, right? You will struggle with it or you will engage it. The cornerstone will seem strange to you or you will suddenly realize that it is perfect for you. When Jesus speaks of the parable in Mark, he's talking, talking, talking. All of a sudden, he just switches it around and says, David, by the way, he will have the Son, and the Son will become the Son of God. And he quotes 2 Samuel 7. He pulls it all together. Peter says, listen, I want you to know that Jesus is not going to reside. God is not going to reside inside a temple in Jerusalem. He's going to reside in the temple that we are all part of. He wants the God to fill the entire earth inside here. He wants his glory to fill the entire world. This is what he's calling us to. It is far greater than anything you could ever imagine. So we are called to worship, to be part of this incredible journey that God has called us to. Christmas 
is so good that we should not keep it to ourselves. Earlier this week, Pastor Jessica and I were signing all the Christmas cards. And uh, we, we sent out like 550 different Christmas cards to different families. And uh, we were filling all these in and making sure that the labels were correct and uh, realizing that actually as we're filling these in that some of these addresses were not right. So we started to like write to people and text them and ask them, hey, could you send us your snail mail so that we could actually get this right? Because by the way, some of you have moved or some of you think you've given us your address and, and uh, maybe it was, you know, 500 years ago, uh, but it probably needs to be updated. So if you want to update your address, you can take a connect card, fill it in and place it inside the offering altar that we're gonna place right in the front here. But as we're filling these in, um, I couldn't help but notice, right, that some things were just catching my eye. For instance, I know um, my new address where I'm going to be moving to in Dakono. And so as I notice that, it's like when you, when you buy a gray car, you notice all the gray cars, right? Right? So as you buy something, you notice something, you notice all those things as well. So as I noticed the, the, my address, I noticed all the houses in Firestone, in Dakono, uh, in Frederick. And I was, just, I was just amazed at how many, how many people live in that area. It's just, it's just like, oh my goodness, there's so many people. So many people who live in that area who actually don't come to church. So many people who actually live in that area who do come to church. And I realized there's just like so much ministry that needs to be done. And as we were filling in these cards and, and writing notes at times and just pausing and reflecting on stories, we realized that there's just so much ministry that needs to be done. There's so many stories that are connected. Because this church, I mean, this church is just about this huge family of all of us together. We cannot do this church by ourselves. This church is actually all of us carrying each other. And every single one of this, these cards represents a different story. And everybody's going through a different journey. And everybody's got something that they're carrying. You think that people come to church and everything's all cheery and everything's fine and they all look great, right? They're like, happy Sabbath, good to see you. Hey, had a great time this week, everything's good, but you have no idea the pressure, the things that are going on. People come and say, hey, it's just, you know, it's just one little thing I want to be able to put on. It's like, it's just so much that everybody is carrying and we need each other. We need each other. And I'm telling you, I need you. I need you. I need you to continue doing all that you do. I need you to continue greeting. I need you to continue creating the great refreshments that you do. I need you to continue producing the services. Come in here really early in the morning on Sabbath morning and making sure the heat is on and turning on the sound and making sure the church is ready during the middle of the week and making sure that we're ready to actually worship here. I need all the work that the team puts in to making sure that we have the music to be able to worship together. The work that goes into preparing that the classes are taught and the teachers don't sit down there and think to themselves for the first time, I'm looking at the biblical text for the first time and I have no idea because I never prepared anything. I'm proud that you think about what you're doing. I'm proud that you prepare and you care. I'm proud that on top of everything else that you're carrying, you care for this community as well. I'm proud that you give sacrificially as well. That you pay with your tithes and with your offerings and with your renovation of what we're doing. Because we have so much more to do together here. So when you give today, and we're going to sing as we sing the song, I, I want you to take your cards out, your Christmas gift, 
and what you place inside there is an affirmation of what you have done this year and what you're going to do for the future as well. Together, we can all lift. There are a lot of people in this church, I know, I know, who have offered uh, and said, I'm willing to do something, but I'm not sure what. And there's a lot of you who think that actually you've done a lot in the past, and so now it's somebody else's turn to do. There's a lot you can do. You don't have to give a lot. You can give one hour of your time. And you don't even have to come to church to give that one hour. Seriously, we will help you to be able to serve from your home, to be able to help us at the church here so we can move the mission. Because there are so many people who want to hear the good news that not only does Jesus save them, but Jesus actually wants to fill the entire earth with his glory. And that glory, that glory is not only going to shape this earth, but that glory is going to shape this universe. And as we shape this universe, his second coming is going to take place. And with the second coming, we have this planet restored to what it should be called. God bless you.